near-death experiences can be all the rage, right? People are interested. They want to hear. They want to, to hear people's perspective who have died and come back to life. Interestingly enough, my mom had one such experience when she was in the hospital and was put to sleep under an anesthesia, brought back to the room after the procedure. I don't remember what the procedure was, but my dad was with her. And my dad noticed she was not breathing and called for help and they rushed in and they were able to resuscitate her. But she told a story of, of being outside of her body and watching them work on her and then being, you know, back in her body. But there are tons of stories like that and they're popular because naturally speaking, we fear death. And we have a curiosity about what's on the other side and we want to know. So who better to ask than someone who has been there, right? And so there's tons of, if you go on YouTube, I mean, there's tons of them everywhere. People giving near-death experiences. There's a problem with these experiences, though. They're not reliable. They often contradict each other. They're usually about happy stuff. Occasionally, you'll have somebody say that they died and, you know, found themselves in hell and were resuscitated and give those testimonies. But we don't develop doctrine by experience. Experience can confirm or not confirm certain things that we believe, but the experiences are not reliable, especially when they contradict each other. What we need is an authoritative interpretation Someone who can give us reliable information regarding what to expect and how to prepare. And we have one who has passed through the grave, defeating death, given us a reliable word on death and it being conquered. And that one is Jesus, the true Messiah, the true Savior. The one who gives us the truth about death and the one who has conquered death. If you remember, John the Baptist had some false expectations even about the Messiah and what he would do in his first coming. And so John sends word to Jesus and says, are you the one to come? Or do we expect someone else? Because even John, I think, was looking for that conquering king on that first, first coming. But he asked a question and Jesus says this in Matthew eleven four 4-5. Jesus answered, said, go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk and the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And here we go. And the dead are raised and the poor have the good news preached to them. So John, everything you read uh, from Isaiah and the other prophets about what the Messiah would do, I am doing. So be encouraged. And one of the signs you see in this text of that the true Messiah had come was the dead are raised. The dead are raised. There is a such thing as resurrection. I often feel sorry for the people that were raised in this life only to have to die again. Right? 
So it wasn't an eternal resurrection. It was a temporal resurrection, but it was proof that Jesus is who he said he was, that life over death is what he has accomplished. Christianity is about life. Eternal life. Yes, abundant life here, fruitful life here, rightly defined as the Bible defines that, but especially life beyond the grave. New heavens, new earth. And this is kind of what I wanted to look at in the text today. We see the dead raised up, and I'll I'll show you that from the text. We see the message of the gospel confirmed by a resurrection here. We see people powerfully encouraged in Troas because of a resurrection or a raising from the dead. I titled this sermon, The Resurrection of Mr. Lucky. And, and I'll tell you why in a, in a few minutes, why, why I gave it that message. But just a little bit of recap first. I've told you that we're on the third missionary journey, that Paul is on what the last of what we call his missionary journeys. He will end up in Jerusalem. He will get in some trouble there, be arrested. He will go to Rome. Eventually, he will be martyred. Uh, and we're getting a lot of time compression. We saw that in the first part of chapter 20. I'm not going to deal with that very much. But after all the uproar ended in Ephesus and Paul had already been making plans to go further on into Macedonia and, and go check on the churches and continue preaching the gospel. Well, after all the confusion died down in Ephesus, it says in, in chapter 20 that he is doing that. And it says he said his farewell and departed for Macedonia. And then you have what seems like a short amount of time when you read it but it's time compression because he spent months in some places but you have almost the the sort of ending of the third missionary journey I have a map for you I think where you can see where we are maybe I'll trip over less things over here we're in Ephesus and he's heading out to Troas but the way he's going to get there is, is he'll go all the way up through Macedonia, down through Greece, back around, depart Philippi, uh, and come back to Troas. So in those first few verses of chapter 20, we have all this represented. So he's going to go around, checking on the churches, strengthening the churches. There's a threat against him down here. So he, instead of coming back to Syria, he goes back up through Macedonia and, and that's all God guiding him and that's how he sees it. But we go all the way around the horn here and we end up back here, right here in Troas. And that's where we are when we pick it up in verse 7. So there was, there was three months in Greece. There's a threat. He goes back up and he has all these people with him. They're going to be waiting there at Troas and he gets there to meet them. And that's kind of a quick reference of, you see the third missionary journey wrapping up sort of, at least as we read it, very quickly. Because what we're going to, when we leave here at Troas, he's going to come down to Miletus, talk with the Ephesian elders, and then come, come all the way back to Jerusalem, bringing that offering he's been taking up for, for those under the, the famine there. And then he'll end up getting uh, lied about and arrested, and, and on we'll go from there. But we are, we are at Troas, they're going to stay there for seven days, and when we pick it up in verse 7, it'll be the first day of the week. But the main point from verses, really I'm focused on verses 7 to 12 in chapter 20. And the main point is Eutychus being raised from the dead pictures our own victory over death in Jesus 
and His resurrection. All of the resurrections I'll show you this morning. All of the people being what we might even call resuscitated or raised from the dead. That is all picturing a true and greater resurrection which was accomplished in Jesus and then applied to us as we come to faith in Him. And then someday we will be raised as well. Uh, because Christ has defeated death for us. But Eutychus being raised from the dead pictures our own victory over death in Jesus and his resurrection. So I'm going to try to break that out. But first of all, let's look at this text. Just a few things in, in this text from 7 to 12. It says at first, on the first day of the week. Now why is that significant? Because the day of worship up until the resurrection of Christ was the seventh day of the week called the Sabbath. In the Old Testament. Since the resurrection of Christ, the day of worship has been the first day of week. Resurrection. Why is it that way? Because the Catholic Church decided to change it. No. Jesus, the King, changed it. He fulfilled the old, brought in the new. He was raised on the first day of the week. He began to meet and make appearances with His disciples on the first day of the week. And in imitation of that, then through His teaching and example, the apostles got the idea that it, the Lord's Day now was the first day of the week. So when it says they were on the first day of the week, they were gathered to break bread. They were gathered for worship, which included Lord's Supper, what we would call Lord's Supper in the worship. So breaking, gathered for breaking of bread is just shorthand for being gathered for worship. And so that's what they're doing. Intro us on the Lord's Day. They're gathered together to break bread. They'll have a quick little sermon and some food. And this is one of the, I, I joked with you not too long ago talking about how, you know, long sermons are biblical. You can see it in this text. Paul talked with them intending to depart the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. So evidently they met in the evening, right? He prolonged his speech until midnight. You've never heard a long sermon. 45 minutes is not a long sermon. This is a long sermon. And there's danger of sleeping in church now. Watch this. There were many lamps now. They're in an upper room. There were many lamps, and, and this is burning oil, right? This would, this would affect the air quality. It would. Not in a dangerous way, but, you know, it would make you want some fresh air if, if somebody preached till midnight. So, break out the lamps, here we go. No. <clears throat> it says, there were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, his name means lucky or fortunate. That's where I got the resurrection of Mr. Lucky. Okay? Lucky or fortunate was there. And evidently he needed some fresh air. And it says that he was sitting at the window and he sank into a deep sleep. It's kind of funny the way this is emphasized. A little bit. I mean, serious too. As Paul talked still longer, it says... Important stuff. He's, only, he's about to leave. He wants to communicate well and thoroughly with them. And Eutychus, a young man, somewhere between puberty and getting married, in that age, right, has slipped over by, by and into the window seeking some fresh air. And it says this. 
He sank into a deep sleep as Paul still talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep. Now watch this. He fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. God, what are you doing? He fell. His name was really Anthony and he fell from the third story. Those of you who don't know, Anthony, the reason he has that walker in front of them, he just fell from the top of a 24-foot ladder. And praise God, they didn't take him up dead. He, he had a couple of breaks in the top of his pelvis, but no treatment for that. It just has to heal. He's a, are you already back to work now? A little bit. But he's here. But that, so third story. You know, maybe a wealthy home or who knows what the building is, but they're on the third story and this kid is sitting at the window. And the window is not like a window that we would have with glass. and all. It's just, it's an opening in the wall. So for airflow, right? It's an opening in the wall. And he fell asleep in church. Aren't you glad we have seats on the first floor here? I used to have a preacher when, I don't know why I'm telling this. We, used to, we were first converted to the church we used to go to and had a preacher who was, he was kind of a joker. And if he saw you sleeping, he would walk out. He would just keep preaching. And then he would, he would see somebody sleeping. Mike's not asleep, by the way. But then he would turn and say, hey! And he would, he would make a loud noise. And boy, the person would jump, throw their Bible. <laughs> People were more careful about sleeping. Eutychus slept he fell asleep, and listen, we can understand it. Paul's speaking till midnight and still longer. And he falls asleep, and he falls out of the third-story window. And watch this. This is why we know he was dead. It says in, in verse 9, he, he, he fell down from the third story, and he was taken, taken up dead. He was picked up dead. Not as dead. There's another word for that. He was taken up dead. Eutychus died. But it says this. He's taken up dead. Paul went down and bent over him, literally threw himself on him. You, that reminds us of some other things I'm going to point out in a minute. But he bent over him and probably was praying for him and took him in his arms. And then he said, don't be alarmed. For his life is in him. It's kind of like Jesus when he walked in, and we'll talk about that later, on Jairus' daughter and said, why are you weeping? The child's not dead, only asleep. But she was dead. But Jesus knew he was going to intervene in that. And so same here, Paul is prayed and God has answered and his life was back in him. Which interesting, you know, spirit leaving, coming back. But he says, he took him in his arms. He said, don't be alarmed for his life as in him. So this young man has fallen from the window. He is dead. The apostle Paul goes down there and prays for him. And whatever happened, we're not given a lot of detail, took him in his arms. This young man was resuscitated or, or raised from the dead. And Paul says his life is in him. And that ended the meeting, right? Isn't that amazing? He goes right back upstairs and starts preaching and teaching again. 
It says this, and Paul, and when Paul had gone up and broken bread, see the worship service continued, still had Lord's Supper, and eaten, they had the meal together, and conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. Now watch verse 12. And they were, they took the youth away alive. And they were not a little comforted. Just sort of a, a linguistic tool, a figure of speech uh, there. Uh, sometimes negating a negative where it emphasizes the positive. This is saying they were hugely encouraged. They were excited. They were leaping for joy. They were really, really encouraged by what had happened there. That this young man had been raised from the dead. It says they were not a little comforted. They were greatly comforted, amazed. More com Now watch this. More comforted and amazed than if it had never happened. They were more comforted and amazed and, and their faith was stronger than if it had never happened. If Eutychus hadn't fallen out and died, there would have been no miracle and there would not have been this growth and encouragement and blessing. Hardships are mercies in disguise. What are you going through right now? Because I know you're going through something. Eutychus is a picture. He's an example of the fact that in Jesus' death and resurrection, death has been defeated. The death of death and the death of Christ. He came to deliver us from the fear of death, Hebrews 2 says. Because he's conquered death for us. That's why Paul can say, for me to live is Christ and to die is scary. Is that what he said? To die is gain. And it is still a little scary sometimes. But resurrection is what happened in Troas. I'm going to give you a few more evidences. Some of this, if you're taking notes, you just have to write it down and go back and read it later. But here, I'm going to give you seven other instances of resurrection in the Bible. The first one comes along with recently our reading. If you're reading through the two-year plan with us that's on the website, you, you've seen this in 1 Kings 17 uh, where... The, the widow Zarephath's son was raised from the grave. But 1 Kings 17, uh, 1-7. Samuel Kings Chronicles, if you can get there. Um, sorry, I didn't put this in my notes, so I'm having to turn to it. But this is Elijah's confrontation with Ahab. He's predicted a drought. The drought has come. Uh, there's a widow there in Zarephath who is evidently getting ready to fix her sort of last meager meal before they die because of the drought and famine that's going on. And Elijah has been being fed by the ravens and things. God's taking care of him. And he says, he says to, God says to Elijah, I, I have commanded a widow in Zarephath to take care of you. Go there and she will take care of you. Well, God hasn't really spoken to her in a voice. But, but he's going to work through that to provide for Elijah. And so he goes there. He meets this lady. Uh, long story short, she tells him what she's going to do. She's going to cook the last cake and eat it and die with her son. Um, and, and so Elijah says, well, go and do what you said. Go fix uh, the, the last portion 
of what you have and 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 but first make me a cake right and God, God's going to take care of you so she does that and and long story short God provides she doesn't run out of of wheat and oil she's able to eat and 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 all of that and so the widow of Zarephath takes care of Elijah and Elijah God uses him and through him to to make sure that the jar of flour wasn't spent or the jug of oil became empty. According to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah, it lasted until the drought was over. Miracle there. But then see, isn't this often how it goes? You're riding high. And all of a sudden, boom, this trial hits. And it can be, why Lord? And I think that's some of what she felt. But look what she said, 1 Kings 17. After this, after all of that and the miracle and God's providing for her and she's taking care of Elijah, it says in verse 17, After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. You know what that means, right? Dead. And she said to Elijah, now watch this, and she's in grief, so don't judge her too harshly. Why, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And Elijah doesn't, he knows that's grief speaking and he doesn't really address that. He just says, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up in the upper chamber where he lodged, laid him on the bed, and he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, let the child's life come into him again. He's dead. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came into him again and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. So, I mean, you see the grief. You see the son dying. It's a real trial. She goes through terrible suffering. Even to the fact that she's accusing the man of God in, in her grief. And yet God comes through. Notice it's not because of her faith. She really doesn't have any. She's lashing out at this point. But Elijah is used by the Lord to raise her son from the dead. And she is now more powerfully encouraged than if this had never happened well you can see a similar story in second kings 4 32 to 37 i'm not going there but instead of elijah then that's elisha or however you want to say it the shunammite woman's son is raised from the dead by god using elisha Jump to the New Testament in Luke 7, 11 to 17 now this one has always fascinated me the widow Nain's son if you, haven't, if you don't remember that, go to Luke 7, 11 to 17 and read about it. I'm not, I'm not going, I don't have time to do that this morning. They have had a funeral. They are on their way to the grave. I mean, when, when, when we, we'll have a funeral and then we're, you'll see a procession of cars and there's a hearse in that procession. This is kind of like that. You know there are no cars, 
right? They're carrying him in, a, in, in, in an open coffin down the street. You might have seen pictures of some of this in the Middle East. And so Jesus comes onto the scene, divine sovereign appointment, sees that coming towards him, stops that. Stops the procession, touches the coffin, and tells the young man to sit up. And he sits up. And is alive. And we sit there all cool this morning, but that would freak you out. There's a lot of movies with scenes like that that don't turn out well. But My brother even played a joke. My brother used to be an EMT. Worked in the hospital. And he had a buddy uh, who was a fellow EMT. And their, their office, the ambulance left. It, it, instead of being in another building, it went out and came back. It, it was part of the hospital. And so my brother Steve told a friend in the hospital, said, I don't remember his friend's name, said, send him to the morgue in 30 minutes. Give him a reason. Whatever. Paperwork. He needs to go get. So my brother goes down into the morgue, takes his shoes off, puts a tag on his toe, covers himself up with a sheet, and waits. And when his friend comes through the door into the morgue to get the paperwork, he just sits up in the sheet. Uh, said the guy like tore the wall down getting out of there <laughs> that was a fake resurrection but imagine I mean that Jesus interrupts the funeral procession he touches the coffin and the, the widow named son is raised how about Jairus' daughter Jairus had come to Jesus and if you want to read about that that's in Mark 5 34, 35 to 43 you, you can go read that but, but Jairus comes to Jesus and says, My daughter is sick unto death. Please come and lay your hands upon her. Jesus agrees to go to his house with him. On the way is when the lady touches the hem of his garment and is healed from the, from the bleeding. And then they get to Jairus' house and all the mourning is going on and they're saying, Your child is dead. And you know, all of this kind of stuff. And Jesus says, Stop it. She's not dead, only asleep. And they laugh at him. They know she's dead. But he goes in and says, little girl, arise. She, her life reenters. He gives her back to her parents. She's alive. How about Lazarus in John 11? I'll read a little bit about that. But go read, go read John 11 and read the story of Lazarus. There's an important thing in this story for us. Well, a lot of important things in this story for us to take away. But... Um, but, I'm sorry, John 11. I said, I always do that. I, have, I get 11 and 17 crossed up. Um, but basically, Martha and Mary sin for Jesus. They tell Jesus that Lazarus is sick. They want him to come. Um, they're afraid Lazarus is going to die. And Jesus hears the story. And he says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. This illness is for the glory of God. See, that sparks a lot of people's theology. But it, this illness, Lazarus dying. He says, it's for the glory of God so that the Son of Man be may be glorified through it. Now listen to this. I don't have this as a slide. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. We expect that to read, he loved Martha and, and Lazarus and Mary. And so as soon as he heard, he rushed over there. 
He, he sat still for two days. He let him die. And in God's sovereignty, they were allowed to go through that grief. And they even say when Jesus finally does show up, Lord, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. And you even see, you know, Jesus weeping in this context. And he cares not, he cares what sin does. And he's angry at sin and he's touched by his people's grief and he, he weeps. He knows what he's going to do. And yet he cares to that depth. But it says this in, in 38 to 44. Jesus moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, interesting way to put it, John, the sister of Lazarus said to him, Lord, by this time there is an odor for he has been dead four days. And in the Jewish mind, if you once the third day was gone, all hope was lost. The, old, the King James I love at this point. Surely, Lord, by now he stinketh. <laughs> Surely, he did. But, that's no impediment to God. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! Another kind of spooky scene. Lazarus, wrapped up in all the shroud and all, comes out, and they unwrap him. And he's alive. Jesus said, says this, The man who had died came out. His hands and feet were bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. And now the enemies of Jesus, instead of bowing at his feet, not only want to kill Jesus, but they want to kill Lazarus. But Lazarus was in the grave, corrupting, stinking Dead four days, and at the command of Jesus, he comes out. He's raised from the dead. And Jesus had said earlier to, to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He includes us in this. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. See, that's all a picture of, and a confirmation of who Jesus is and what He does for His people. Through the Gospel, He calls us out of spiritual death into repentance, turning and trusting in Him. And He will call all of us out of the grave, our bodies anyway, if He tarries that long before He returns. Well, another one in Acts. We've seen another in Acts. It was, it was Tabitha. Or Dorcas in chapter 9 where Peter goes in and God uses him to raise her from the dead. And then we see here uh, Eutychus being raised from the dead. Which all pictures Jesus' resurrection. Look at, look at 1 Corinthians 15. 1 to 4. What does resurrection have to do with the gospel? Everything. Everything. If there is no resurrection, there is no gospel, and you shouldn't be here this morning. 
It should be somewhere else. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, he was a liar. He was a false prophet. He was an imposter. But he was. The most provable fact in history, if you don't use a double standard, I know I say that all the time, you've got to believe me. 1 Corinthians 15, now watch, and you can read the rest of the chapter. It's a long one, but read it and look, know the essential nature of the resurrection. But in 15, 1 to 4, it says, Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered, now watch this, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. He took the justice we deserve. He took the condemnation we deserve. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. That means it was all predicted in the Old Covenant, Old Testament. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas. He appeared to more than 500 people at once. He was with the disciples for 40 days. And I'm, I'm moving away from the text now. Jesus rose from the grave. Proving it all true. He is the Savior, the Messiah. When he, one of the confirming signs of him being the Messiah was people being raised from the dead. We've already seen that. And yes, people had to go through the trial of a loved one dying. But the glory at the end was not worthy. The suffering wasn't worthy to be compared with that glory. So little, little picture, big picture, Romans chapter 8 for the glory we'll have in the new heavens, new earth. But let me, let me just pull away from these and just wanted to show you that the Bible is about resurrection. That Christianity is resurrection. That Jesus is resurrected. And that all of these resurrections in the Bible point to the true and bigger resurrection which is His and then ours in Him which the Scripture talks about. He's the first fruits. And His Spirit in us is the guarantee of the redemption of our bodies. Well, let, me, let me back off to one thing I said, then we'll talk about life will be done. But listen, I want you to remember, trials have a purpose. Suffering has a purpose. Hardship has a purpose. Some of you are dealing with really hard stuff right now. It has a purpose. It's not meaningless. It didn't just slip up on you. It didn't just slip up on God. But He's with you in it. Taking you through it. Making you like Jesus. Assuring you of a new and full and better life. Even if whatever this thing is takes this life from you. Trials take us deeper. Listen to me. Trials take us deeper into our relationship with Jesus. Deeper than we would go without them. They're chisels. Think you want a picture. You know what a sculpture is. Like Michelangelo. He took the rock and carved away everything that didn't look like David. Well, Jesus is the sculpture. Or God is the sculpture with the chisel in his hand. The chisel are, is the trials. And he's using the trials to chisel it away. Everything about us that doesn't glorify him. Everything about us that doesn't look like Jesus. And when, he, when we're glorified, when He's finished with that, when Christ appears, we will appear like Him in glory. Glorified. Set free. Listen, we don't believe these things, but I want to say them to you anyway. We're much better off because of the trials than if we didn't have them. Confidently, I can say that. Why else would James say, count it all joy 
when you fall into various trials? How could Paul say we rejoice in our sufferings in, in Romans chapter 5? Because both places give the reason. Because we know that God is in them with us and He's using them to grow us and to shape us and to make us more like Christ. To produce faith and patience and endurance that comes through hardship. See, Eutychus and his family were better off because he fell and died. Lazarus and his family were better off. Jesus, his family... It was better. Imagine the crushing disappointment when Jesus died on the cross. They all thought it was over. We had thought He was the one to come. And then the joy of resurrection. God is with you in your suffering. God is producing good things in and through your suffering. And the cool thing about God is He finishes the work. Some of the trials and sicknesses that we go through in this life, we go through the same as people outside of the church go through. We just don't go through them alone and we have hope in the midst of them. Some of your sufferings might take you out of this life or might take me out of this life. But you know what? My greatest hope is not for this life. I'm not eager to leave. Not looking forward to the process, whatever that is. Right? But I know that Christ has conquered death. And that even these little trials I go through, and they're all little in comparison to what Jesus went through on the cross for us. But everything I go through, He's promised me that I will have trials and that He will use them to make me like Jesus. So no matter how many people you get praying for you, you won't have a trial-free life. No matter how much money you give to whoever you give it, they won't be able to guarantee that to you. A lot of them will just take advantage of you. But trust the one who's passed through the grave for us and has been raised from the dead. So trials have a purpose. We're much better with them. And we can count them all joy when we have them because we know that God is sovereign. Our Savior is with us. And He's producing good things even through our pain and struggle. That will change the shape of them. If we can believe them. Trials always ask us, do you trust me, don't they? Do you trust me? Can you trust me with this? I know this is hard. I mean, he weeps with us. He suffers with us. And he's delivering us from everything that would harm us. But sometimes that comes through trials. These resurrections prove His resurrection. I'll end with this. All of this points to Jesus and His resurrection and our victory over death in Him. I wanted to remind you of something boldly this morning. If you're trusting in Jesus, even with an imperfect faith, let me set you free. Look around. We all have an imperfect faith. We'll have a perfect knowing when we, when we are glorified. But if, you, if your hope is in Jesus for salvation... This is true of you. Have a slide for eternal life. See it? <laughs> that represents... There we go. If you're trusting in Jesus, you have this now. Don't look at me like my eyes are square. You have this now. 
if you're trusting in Christ. If you're trusting in Christ, we will, if Jesus tarries, we will all be raised from the grave, but raised incorruptible. You have eternal life now if you're trusting in Him. One verse of Scripture, John 5, 24. When Jesus says truly more than once, He's emphasizing. Guaranteeing. He's emphasizing. He said in John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, now watch this closely, whoever hears my word and believes Him who sent me, the Father sent the Son, Son died for our sin, believes the gospel, whoever hears my word and believes Him who sent me has... What tense is that? Has eternal life. Does not come into judgment or condemnation, but has already passed from death to life. That's why Jesus could say, the one who believes in me will never die. Yes, our body will die and go into the grave, but we will immediately go into His presence. Believe that. If you're trusting in Jesus You right now have eternal life. You have already passed through the judgment as it were and have passed from death to life. In Jesus, we have eternal life. Ponder on that this week a little bit. Because this life gets between you and that and makes you forget that. And If you're trusting in Jesus, you've been forgiven for all of your sins. Every stinking one of them. Better than that. Washed away, incinerated on the cross. You have been credited with His righteous record. All of His keeping of the law and thought, word, and deed. Perfect performance is given to you as a gift. So that before the judgment throne of God, that's who you are because you've died and you're hidden in Christ. And that's what He's transforming us into. But our acceptance with God is all Jesus. And even the faith, as feeble as it is for you to trust in Him, is a gift from Him. So it's sufficient. If you are trusting in Jesus, you have eternal life. He purchased it for you. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to pay Him back for it. You can't. When we die, our spirits will go immediately to be with the Lord. Our bodies will rest in the grave until His resurrection, at which time when He, I mean, I mean, until His return, when He returns, reunited with the body, those who preceded us in death will go first. We will meet with them. We'll be ever, ever with the Lord. I just want you to be encouraged this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, 50-57 says this. Again, I say, go read the whole chapter. I tell you this, brothers or brethren, this is the whole church, male and female. I tell you this, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of the eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed if we're still here when He returns, right? This perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality then shall come to pass the saying which is written death is swallowed up in victory oh death where is your victory death where is your sting the sting of death is sin the power of sin is the law but thanks be to god who gives us gives us gives us the victory Through Jesus Christ.
our Lord. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of eternal life is ours in Christ Jesus. Your hope is beyond this life. It's beyond the grave whenever that comes and if it comes, if He tarries. Your hope is in a resurrected Savior who is reigning for you and who is coming back to get you. Your righteous standing is His righteous standing. And his cross has obliterated all of your sin. Why not have hope even in the midst of the struggles that we have? See, this is all because all these riches, forgiveness, righteousness, reconciliation with God, life forever, new heavens, new earth, all of this is because of what we celebrate. Jesus' death and resurrection for us. Christ died for our sins According to the scriptures, he was buried, he was raised the third day, and he gives eternal life to those who repent and trust him. Are you trusting in the Lord Jesus this morning? See, John the Baptist's doubts were relieved by the truth of who Jesus was and what he came to do, to conquer death before he comes again as the conquering king. And our fears and doubts are relieved when we believe the truth of who Jesus is and what he came to do, to conquer death for us we have authoritative revelation from the one who has conquered death we have his word on what happens at death and beyond so we don't have to fear it in fact you're not ready really ready to live in this life until you're ready to die are you ready to die i'm not asking i'm not about to send you I'm not asking you if you really want to go today. But are you prepared for it? It will come. It's appointed to man once to die. And then the judgment. Are you ready for the judgment? You can only be ready for the judgment if you're trusting in Jesus. Your record's not good enough. Mine's not good enough. All of our righteousness is filthy rags. But see, we have a information from one who came to live for us, die for us, and be raised again. So we can trust in Jesus alone. Faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Trust and rest in Jesus and have what was pictured by Eutychus' resurrection, which is true life, eternal life, and the one who has defeated death for us. Trust and rest in Christ, to live as Christ. Let's pray. Father, we praise you this morning. We thank you that in our sin, in our weakness, in our, uh, we were your enemies, Lord Jesus, and you came to die for us. You came to reconcile us. And you are ra- you have, you've been raised from the grave. You are reigning at the right hand of power and authority. You are coming again. Help us to trust you. Help us to rest in you. Help us to believe the good news. That you are our Savior and have dealt with our sins. You have paid the penalty. You paid it in full. And that your righteous record is ours through faith. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him, trusts in him, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Help us to trust you, Lord. Work in the hearts of all of us who are here And all listening over the internet, Lord, too. I would pray, save all, Lord. We trust you with that. 
may you answer all of our prayers according to your will, which is best. May you lead us step by step in faith in Jesus. May you lead us with confidence in the face of death, knowing that you have conquered for us. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.